lovely friends great to see you today thank you for being here great to think about our our session number 15 of david hume um david hume of the 18th century there's just way too much to say about him um but again we're not so interested in him as much as what some of this brings up for us um and in exploring some of the ideas that emerged in his time period so to get our our juices flowing a little bit Let's start with a little poll question here on emotion and cognition. My big moral decisions are mostly made through analysis. Option one, my big moral decisions are mostly made emotionally. Option two, I cannot separate my emotional life and my cognitive life. Option three, this requires some degree of self-awareness on kind of a very deep level um, that may be impossible, but maybe we have a leaning Maybe we have a leaning for ourselves. Okay, let's see our results here. Okay, 17% say they make their big moral decisions made mostly through analysis. 17% say they make most of the big moral decisions through emotions, the emotional realm. And 67% says they can't really separate out those two. That, then that may mean I don't know, like I don't know which is driving the other. Or that may mean the two are just so inextricably linked. You know, in, in Musar, there's a famous phrase uh, in, in the world of, of Musar that the longest path in the world is the path between the head and the heart. The longest path in the world is between the head and the heart. That's to say, I know something so deeply emotionally, but can I really get my mind to kind of um, embrace it? More commonly, it means the opposite. I know something so deeply cognitively, why can't I feel it, right? Um, we could use so many examples to explore such an idea. Somebody says, I really want to be more committed to X, Y, and Z. And here's five reasons why I should feel committed to X, Y, and Z. So why can't I, I feel so motivated to go and live it, right? I know it matters. I, I've got all these reasons why it matters, but I can't live it, right? So that's one way it could play out. Another way it could be like, on paper, I love this person, right? This person's nice. This person is pleasant. And yet I don't feel love for this person, right? So like, I should I stay in this relationship? Should I leave this relationship? Like on paper, it all makes sense. Um, but I don't feel it, right? And there's so many other examples like that where there may be a gap between our, what we used to think of as our heart and our mind as if there was actually physical locations, but it may actually be, you know, different parts of the brain. And some actually people have some neuroscience bunk the whole idea as well, that the brain isn't completely 
interconnected as if there's just these spots um, that are totally separate. Um, but of, but we're going too far afield here. In any case, in our moral decision-making, there is the camp that thinks we are people of reason. We are beings of reason. And we should overcome those petty emotions getting in the way of the clarity of reason. And then there's other people who think the deepest way of knowing is through the heart, is through the, the realm of emotions. And all we're doing with reason is justifying things we already decided through the emotional realm. Reason is so weak. It's just there to explain what we already want to do, what we already feel. And so that's partially, among other things, what we're going to explore today. Do we know for sure that the sun will rise and that we will wake up in the morning? Can abstract reason alone bring us to knowledge? Or do we experience, do we need experience as well? How useful is it to know what will probably happen versus knowing something with absolute certainty? David Hume was a Scottish Enlightenment era philosopher and a proponent of empiricism and skepticism in the camp of Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. He attended the, the University of Edinburgh at the age of 12, but based on the deep skepticism he'd acquired, he worked himself into a nervous breakdown, seeing how difficult it is for truth to be established. He moved to France where he wrote his famous Treaties of Human Nature before returning to Scotland. He later was appointed to work at the British Embassy in Paris where he became friends with the great French philosopher, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. The root of Hume's skepticism was the idea that causality cannot definitely be proven, right? Correlation, but not causality. Instead of proving our ideas in some absolute fashion, we rely lazily upon habit, custom, and prior assumptions about how things work. For Hume, the mere fact that we've seen the sun come up every day of our lives does not mean we know the sun will rise tomorrow. I have no proof that the sun will rise tomorrow. I'm just being lazy and relying on the fact that it rose every day prior to this day, as, at least in my life. Hume argued that we never actually witnessed the causal power, the actual force that causes things to happen. And so we merely make generalizations based on what we see in nature. For Hume, we can think about the finite and concrete that is visible to us, but we have no real impression of infinity in the expansive sense of how large things can get or of how small things can. We can hold no abstract ideas about time, space, or substance, only that which we can experience in the here and now. Hume's empiricism led him to what is called the is-ought problem, making the point that one cannot derive an ought from a set of facts about what is. That is to say, there are descriptive statements and prescriptive statements, and you can't reach the prescriptive from the descriptive, right? Sometimes we are describing what is, and sometimes we are prescribing what ought to be. And the relationship between those two is quite complicated. This also led Hume to distinguish between demonstrative statements and probable statements. 
a demonstrative statement can be upheld in logic. Two plus two equals four. And you don't need to experience something to prove it. Right? There's no realm of ex experience of holding two things in my hand and holding two things in my other hand and adding them up. You can think <coughs> through such a demonstrative statement without the realm of experience to get there. Probable statements are such that they're not found in the realm of logic, but in the realm of empirical fact. For example, Bob is in the house. You can walk in the house and see if Bob is in there. For any statement we may propose to be meaningful, it first must be determined whether it is a probable statement or a demonstrative statement. If it's neither, we can't prove it and it's unhelpful for finding truth. Okay? So, yes, there is truth for Hume. One form of truth, truth is demonstrative statements like two plus two is four. It, through logic, I can get there. And then there are probable statements such as, is Bob in the house? Well, I could go walk in the house. I sure hope Bob's not in my house, whoever Bob is. But <laughs> I can walk in the house and look for Bob. And if I can't find Bob in there anywhere, Bob's not in there. Right. <laughs> now I'm freaked out about Bob all over the place. You know, <laughs> I've got an Uncle Bob. Hopefully we all have a good Uncle Bob in our lives or what we once did. <laughs> in any case, beyond those two, if it's not logic and it's not experienced, everything's in question. For example, the sun will rise tomorrow is not a demonstrative statement because it's inevitably, it inevitably cannot be proven in any absolute logical sense, but it's also not a probable statement because we cannot observe the outcome of a future event before it has occurred. And so at best, experience teaches us that it is likely, it's likely that the sun will rise tomorrow, but we have no absolute rational grounds for such a belief. What Hume rejected was inductive inference deducing things about the future based on past evidence. And that's where he thinks we're most lazy. We think we know what's gonna happen tomorrow. Why? Because of what happened today and what happened yesterday. But actually we have no idea what's gonna happen tomorrow, right? The best case of that was those of us who looked at the stock market um, the day uh, that COVID hit, well, COVID kind of hit in kind of a wave of activity. But the day when it was like, oh my gosh, like this is real. And this stock market went, whoa. And there was no chacham. There was no sage in the stock market world who knew that was going to happen, right? With all their, maybe Steve Chauvin did, you know? <laughs> but I had no clue what was going on. I'm not so invested in the stock market. It's just a very kind of concrete, you know, tangible way. Well, it's not very tangible at all, actually. It's a very... It's a very um, kind of, you know, um, I'm, 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 I can't think of the word. It, it is a very um, common way that we all kind of experience an up and down in a shared reality. Because um, emotionally, we're all over the place every day. We don't really share that realm. But you can look at a market and a market is something that most people have some stake in. And so we can kind of share that experience in it. It's kind of like a 9-11, right? We have very different relationships to 9-11 happening, but like 
there's some shared reaction to uh, a kind of a national threat. So this notion of deducing things about the future based on past evidence, that's what he wants to reject. And there are these times in our life, maybe you get a diagnosis, maybe you think you don't have cancer, and the next day you find out you do, and um, you had no way of knowing that. Or there's an accident. Those are all negative cases. Let's think of positive cases too. You get a positive phone call you never thought you would have gotten, right? Um, so there are things that happen in our lives we can never expect or predict or plan for. Um, but he wants to go further than just those rare moments that actually all these things that we only know based upon happening in the past are things we should stop relying upon. <clears throat> Hume does say that statements like the sun will rise tomorrow can be useful. I mean, it's useful not to be a fool, right? Um, it's useful to assume that, it, you know, but they're not provable. So most of us might not care about philosophy enough to say, do I really care about what's provable? I really just care about what's useful to me. And the truth is that is the majority of human beings today. Most people don't live in the realm of proof. They, they live in the realm of usefulness. Um, and it's useful to assume a whole bunch of things about reality, regardless of whether they're provable or not, right? Um, a great case, and I've used it before, but just to use it again, I have no way of proving, actually, let me see who's here before I say this. I don't know who the 412 number is, um, but by and large, <laughs> I think it's safe to say, I love everybody who's here, right? I know everybody who's here. And I feel a love towards everybody who's here, not some abstract, like, I love humanity. I have no idea what that means, love humanity. But like, I've experienced, I have a bunch of experience with, with everyone who's here. I don't love everyone here, like my father, or like my son, or like my best friend. But I love people here very uniquely in a way that's like a deep care for the people here, and care for their ideas and care for their experience. But I have no way to prove to any of you whether I love you, right? For all you know, I'm just involved in some deceptive activity right now to have you think that I love you because I want something from you, right? Um, for all you know. And so, so too, there's no way to ever, <laughs> thank you. Um, there's no way to ever know somebody loves us. The best we can do is be like, I think based upon the fact the person stayed married to me for 10 years is a sign they love me, or the fact that like they show up and help me consistently, or the fact that they tell me in a way that seems authentic, I'm going to have to trust those things, even though they can't prove to me they love me, right? Rental habits to make sense of the world may be helpful when we don't have a rational justification for this, but it must be done with great caution, one might say. Now, one sees a similar inclination in the words of the prophet Isaiah, Yeshayahu. Uh, my son Shay or Shaya is named after the, the last part of the name Yeshayahu. Um, here's what Isaiah writes. My Lord said, because that people has approached me with its mouth and honored me with its lips, but has kept its heart far from me. And its worship of me has been a commandment of men learned by rote. Truly, I shall further baffle that people with bafflement upon bafflement and the wisdom of its wise shall fail, and the prudence of its prudent shall vanish. So what is, I, I'm not asking a rhetorical question, I'm asking for real, 
what is um, what is Isaiah um, express uh, you know expressing here? What is he critiquing? Feel free to chat or mute. It looks like he's okay. So talking about learning things by rote and everything. Right. Well, yeah. Right. All right. So all right, I'm just looking at this. How many things? All right. Well, one of the problems that I have memorization versus did you actually let it sink in? Did it actually right. like? Right. Yeah, have meaning to you. And so, um, yeah, does it actually mean anything yeah. if you learned it by road? So you can say, oh, yes, I love God, but it's because it's the right answer. Uh -huh. A, B, C, D. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, very good. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a common phrase in the yeshiva world, in the traditional Jewish learning world to say, it's. Um, I, I don't care how many times you went through the Talmud. I care about how many times the Talmud went through you, which is to say, you can study religious text all day and still be dishonest, right? Um, the question is not how many times did you go through something. You can pray all day and still um, it have no 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 transformation over you. The question is not how many times did you do something rote, but did it actually change you? And so uh, I'll see if anyone else wants to weigh in. But as Aglaia is saying here, I think which is the main read is the one of the great threats of religion as opposed to kind of spontaneous spirituality is that it's rote in a way where we think we're doing something, but we're actually doing nothing at all. Okay, yes, Lauren. So it, at the time, it actually meant that the uh, Jewish people were going through all of the animal sacrifices yeah, as yeah. they should, but they left at the ethics. Right. And so today it could be right. somebody who's like, Externally, Shemesh Abad keeps kosher, but cheats in business or treats people badly. So that's exactly what it means. You're just doing it perfunctorily, but it, as you say, it hasn't entered you. Right, great. Yes, great. So yeah, uh, beautiful. And I see you wrote that in the chat there too, sacrifices versus being ethical. And I love what Sarah wrote as well about going through the motions without a heartfelt commitment. My gosh, how many spaces in our lives do we have that? where we're just going through uh, something, but are not fully present, are not fully bought in, are not emotionally alive. And then as Ethan writes here as well, this keva versus kavana. Um, sorry for this background noise. I'm in a house right now that has this music when the phone rings. <laughs> um, and this keva versus kavana. Um, keva means doing something fixed and set and kavana means doing something with intentionality. And, um, and then, yes, Rab, uh, Rabbi uh, writes, what if the emotion takes over and there is no room for wisdom? Very interesting. Um, that's also very interesting. Yes, that actually, there's, there is a balance here. It's not just all good one way. That you don't want to be emotionally overloaded, as, you know, as Rabbi writes. Um, in a way where it blocks your ability to perform. Here's a classical example, right? Um, you're performing surgery as a surgeon, right? You don't want to be emotional or, or at least not too emotional in that, uh, in a way that's going to block your focus. Or you don't want to be so emotionally, um, or like um, I get emotional at weddings, even weddings I perform, but I have to like kind of pause that um, so that I can, um, you know, um, not be set or, or another great case, you know, is not centralizing yourself. Like, for example, if you are a step removed from someone who's dying and someone else who's closer is in the space, you, one might want to restrain their emotions to give more centrality of emotional expression 
to the one who's closer to the one who's dying, right? Being overly emotional might take away from the person. You know, my wife expressed that to me that, you know, in a way that I told her she didn't have to, but that she said, I'm trying not to cry a lot so I can hold the space for you more as my mother was dying, right? Um, I said, no, 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 you can cry. You can be in that space. But, but she felt that, um, and, and I think there was wisdom to that actually, that when she would cry, I would want to care for her more and I wouldn't be as much in my own crying in a way. Um, and so anyways, there's a lot to say about this idea of, um, of yes, like not just being rote, feeling emotion, but as Rabbi writes over here as well, that actually, that it's not just one way. We have to perform and sometimes emotions can enhance performance and sometimes emotions can block performance, for performance in a whole bunch of, uh, of ways. And it can block thought. It can block thought as well if we're emotionally overloaded. Yes, and as Sarah writes here, what um, when um, is that where we look to Musar's balance between the extremes of any trait? I think it's exactly right. To figure out the balance between Keva and Kavana, doing something consistently and doing something intentionally, doing something intellectually and doing something emotionally, doing something um, uh, with a, a level of heartfilledness, heartfulness, um, but also doing it with a level of other faculties. The only human faculty is not being heart-filled. There's many ways of being humanly present in addition to being heart-filled. And so, yes, ah, oh, lovely, lovely stuff here. So love this. So yes, anyways, here Isaiah is cautioning us against rote religious worship and also reminds us that there will always come a time when the wisdom of the wise shall fail, right? As he, as he wrote over there, the wisdom of the wise shall fail. This is very aligned with Hume, who wants to break our reliance upon rote thinking and wants to challenge those fully invested in the perceived unbreakable power of reason. We might feel we're doing something reasonable, but actually we're just doing it by rote. It's not actually challenge. We will later see Immanuel Kant have disagreements with Hume, and yet Kant credited Hume with walking him, excuse me, waking him up from dogmatic slumbers by challenging him to rethink his basic understanding of the world. Here's the most classic case today is the realm of ideology. We feel like we're smart because we feel we're in the right ideological camp. I'm a reformed Jew. I'm an Orthodox Jew. I'm a Democrat. I'm a Republican. I'm an American, right? We have some ideology that fits with our community. And so we feel very reasonable because the people around us think about it the similar way in our political camp, in our religious camp, in our social circle. And so I don't have to actually think critically about anything. I'm just comfortable thinking that I'm very reasonable because I surround my, myself around people who think about the world the way I do. But Hume wants to rail against such a thing. So on the issue of free will, Hume embraced compatibilism which is the belief that necessity and free will are ultimately compatible and can be reconciled with one another. He was generally skeptical of religious claims and criticized the teleological argument for the existence of God, which says that the complexity of the world indicated that someone must have created it, right? There's many proofs of God, um, whether we find them compelling or not, and, and one of the many common ones is the teleological argument. 
once again, to state that the world is so complex or so beautiful um, or so rich that there must be someone, something behind this, because this cannot just be an accident of nature. The fact that we can love, we can communicate, we can look at the moon, we can smell flowers, like we can experience such a rich existence that there's no, it's almost like finding a beautiful piece of artwork and saying, clearly there must have been an artist because like nature didn't just produce this Picasso. There must have been a Picasso because this couldn't be an accident. A child didn't make a, a Van Gogh, right? Because a child can't do that. There, there, clearly there must be a brilliant artist behind this art that is incredibly rare and beyond anything we can fathom because most people don't create this kind of thing. So Hume argued against the philosophical rationalists, ultimately suggesting that human behavior is led by the passions rather than by reason. Reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions. One of the famous quotes from Hume. Reason is and ought only be the slave of the passions, he wrote. Don't try to convince yourself of your mind, something that your gut is telling you otherwise. It's just going to fail, right? You need to learn to listen to passion, ultimately. Hume held that our feelings, rather than moral reasoning, guides us in our decision-making and behaviors. It is the realm of the affective, not the cognitive, that sheds light on human action. As opposed to most Enlightenment thinkers who were committed to reason, Hume believed that it is not thinking with clarity, but rather feeling with forcefulness that leads to fulfillment. Hume's idea that ethics are primarily based on emotion rather than abstract moral principle is called sentimentalism. In the history of philosophy, Hume is thought of as one of the three great British empiricists alongside John Locke and George Berkeley. For Locke, who came before Hume, the ideas that humans receive from the outside world, the ideas that humans receive from the outside world should be seen as inputs, like, like a computer perhaps. They're inputs. Hume, by contrast, viewed them as impressions, right? So for Locke, these are inputs like a computer, these, the, 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 the ideas we absorb. And for Hume, their impressions, even as adults, human, Hume believed our first reactions are physical and physiological, not conceptual. Here, once again, he makes the case for the primacy of the affect. With empiricism, the criticisms levied by the Enlightenment against religion and tradition now become turned upon themselves and critique philosophy from the inside. This is an interesting new move that happens. We've seen the enlightenment give birth to affirming reason over authority and dogma. And now with Hume, reason undermined. By challenging someone like Descartes, who famously said, I think, therefore I am, Hume not only questioned the superiority of the mind, but also undermined the prevalent conception of the self. Instead of a self that can be identified through reason, Hume believed all we really have is a bundle of sensations set in motion by the world around us. For Descartes, humans are rational beings, and all one needs to do to find truth is sit in a room and think. 
However, with the birth of empiricism, Locke held that one needs experience in addition to reason. With Hume, not only is experience affirmed as a necessary addition to reason, but it is shown how abstract reason can deceive itself. So what do we make of Hume as, 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 as many of us are Jews or, um, or of monothe monotheists? First, we can see the undeniable value of empiricism and skepticism. In our lives, we don't know what cause, causes impact. We don't know what causes impact us. And therefore we can't prove when something is hashgacha pratit, divine providence, so to speak. No matter how, no matter how hard we might try, it is impossible to discern whether an, an event is based on the laws of nature that God put in place or whether it is truly anomalous. Hume's emphasis on recognizing that tomorrow is not guaranteed can cause us to live with a sense of awe, with yira, as we say in the Midot, in Musar, that what happens in the world must not be taken for granted as necessary. Right? People who say, today may be your last. Right? Live with a sense of wonder of the unknown. When we wake up in the morning, many traditionally say, thank you, living and eternal king, for giving my soul back in mercy. Great is your faithfulness. What these words express is a sense of surprise out of the recognition that it was not guaranteed that we will wake up tomorrow. Rather, doing so should be seen as an act of divine mercy is suggested in this prayer. We ascribe our waking to God's faithfulness, to what God does for us day after day. And indeed, while the Enlightenment's return to reason was an important development for Judaism, because it's a religion heavily reliant upon reason, Hume's skepticism was also deeply beneficial, because it shows that reason is never enough on its own. Furthermore, the modern Jewish movements toward Musar, ethics, and Hasidut, spirituality, both recognize that Jewish religious life cannot be sustained merely through the intellectual study of Talmud or the strict adherence to Jewish practice. We have to focus in our inner life of desires and passions and emotions. It is the Yetzer Tov and the Yetzer Hara. These inclinations incite us towards good and bad and so much more happening within us and interconnected with the cosmos that we must attend to, not logic alone. In Tradition Magazine, Rabbi Dr. Alan Brill pointed out that Hume's is-ought problem has been used by Rabbi Walter Wurzberger to argue against historicist and sociological understandings of halakha, of Jewish law. Rather than assuming halakha can be determined by identifying the historical context that influence its formation, it must rather represent higher principles that guide it. Halakha must challenge us rather than meeting us where we currently are. Brill summarizes Wurzberger's argument by saying, empirical reality cannot create norms, and therefore Jews must turn to the norms of the Torah. That being said, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs regularly pushed back against Hume's notion that we can find truth in feelings. He argued that for Jews, truth must come from an objective source, what he would call God. Hume became a foil for Rabbi Sachs to show that true morality needed to be grounded in revelation 
not sentimentalism. Rabbi Eliezer Berkowitz, on the other hand, posited in his PhD dissertation that Torah is compatible with Hume's approach to knowledge because it is indeed grounded in empirical truths about the world. The Torah has an empirical bend in one sense, since laws have goals and certain actions, mitzvot, are, are meant to produce certain good outcomes, and this can be tested against reality. However, he added that Torah comes with a further objective knowledge from God. Torah then is empiricism plus revelation. To be sure, the problem of induction, to conclude here, friends, for Hume is not just about morality, but about rationality as a whole. With induction, we risk coming to worship the status quo. It is too easy to come to believe that the way things are is the way things have always been and will always be. This is a crucial argument and important for religion to help us challenge the status quo rather than simply and blindly reaffirm it. If we can question whether the sun will rise tomorrow, all the more so we can remain skeptical that oppression and injustice are built into the fabric of human existence cannot be changed. While skepticism and empiricism aren't the only tools Jews have for acquiring knowledge about the world, they are certainly ones worth using. Wow, that was a mouthful. I'm sorry we went way over time, but Hume is just so rich. And as you can see, there's um, so many different ways to go. So as always, go any direction you want to go now with thoughts, questions, uh, whatever's uh, uh, popping up for you. Hi, Aglaia. Okay, so the fast way to get through this one is that I have, okay, so to start off background, I have weird, weird relationships with scientists, okay? So okay. the fast way to talk about this is that, um, okay, my friend who was, you know, she was in her PhD program at MIT back when we had this discussion and everything. I was in my PhD program in Tulane. And I think she had visited me for Mardi Gras. So we might have had a little bit of some, you know, stuff and other stuff involved with this conversation. But anyway, though, the thing was, is that um, she was raised as an atheist and never, and never to this day, still has never believed in God one day in her life. However, though, I was trying to like go off on some sort of philosophical like, you know, thing, you know, with her. And she said that like she was the one who brought up. But don't you think that we have to believe in, some, in something at some point that this, at least and she used the example of we have to believe that the sun will rise in the morning. And I said, nope, we don't have to believe that. You just want to believe that. Now, take it, I was on the fence. I was during one of my times of being on the fence about God and everything else like that. But the fact is that like what the point that I was trying to make is that people believe in something at some point. It's very hard. I mean, most people do. It's very hard to find someone who believes in absolutely nothing. So where I was about to go with this is that um, into Hume's like natural human nature, um, um, morality is like naturally wired. Human, like, if that makes sense, okay? It's like morality is wired into human nature. So that's one of the things I also wanted to ask about in terms of, like, you know, Judaism. Like, you know, and also the other thing I wanted to throw out there is um, I'm not so sure that um, emotion and whatever wisdom, uh, like, reason, all of those are actually opposed because a lot of the time, though, they will take you to the same conclusion. Like, say, for instance, you're the surgeon and this patient is on the operating table and you don't want to, like, like say the time of death, okay? 
However, you do have to, and you know that you have to inside, and there might be emotion. It's not just pure reason that tells you to do that because there's an emotional aspect also. Are you going to just say, I'm going to let this, you know, let this person like suffer on life support for the rest of all time and everything. So I'm not even convinced about that. Just like, I'm not convinced that just because you are technically atheist, you are someone who believes in absolutely nothing. So in terms of Judaism, what can we do with that? Okay. Wow. Aglaia, thank you so much. I'm going to leave most of what you shared for others to engage with um, in the chat or by unmuting, because there's a lot there. Um, the one thing I'll pick up at, at this moment before we go over to Lauren is um, this notion of faith. What does faith mean? My first answer is, I have no idea. Um, my second answer is, well, here we can identify two different possibilities. One notion of faith may mean, I think this is the most common one, the belief in something that can't be seen is held beyond the reality as we experience. So things look broken all around us, but someone has faith that redemption will come, that someone good is in charge, right? That all will work out. Okay, that's one type of faith um, that kind of contradicts the reality, hopefully. The, another type of faith, which I think is less popular, is actually to root the faith within the messiness of contradiction, which is to say, I'm not gonna deny reality, but embrace the reality as it contradicts with some ideal I'm still holding up. Now, here's a good way to bring this to life if that sounds too abstract. Religious Zionists, if to some people you might know exactly what I'm talking about now, if you don't, I'll flesh it out. Religious Zionists in Israel are a group of people who believe God brought the Jews back to Israel. And this is a stepping stone towards the Mashiach, towards the Messiah coming. And so the fact that um, uh, something looks messy around us doesn't matter, right? What your view of, it, of a military occupation is, what your view is of judicial reform, what your view is of different divides, of diaspora Israel, you know, distancing. doesn't matter. Like, we have a faith that this is coming and we're headed that way. That's the most common view of the religious Zionists today. And that's why don't give up one inch of land. Don't care what the other non-religious Zionists think of us. We're going to do what's right because we have faith. It's going to lead us to the right place. An opposing view might be, wow, we, we've got a real mess on our hands over here. And this mess in the reality does not line up with that vision that theologically I was holding. And so that mess and that vision are going to have to be held together somehow um, in a way that's a little less triumphalent, uh, triumph, triumphalent, triumphalent, triumphalistic. How do you say the word? Triumphalist. You know I mean. yeah, say, triumph say it again. Triumphalist. Tri triumphalist? Mm -hmm. uh, okay, I don't know. It sounds so wrong when I say it. Triumphalist. Um, so I, it's like one of those words I write a lot, but don't say it. Um, and so um, there's going to be a little more humility in, in, in holding the contradiction together of the mess and the reality. And so, so too with God. Some people, they experience God in the world. And so faith is, doesn't contradict reality. I believe in God and I experience God. I talk to God and I hear God. Good. Faith and reality match. 
Other people, oh my gosh, I don't see God or hear God. I've got a major problem with how God could be in this world, right? My faith actually is a contradiction with the reality I experience. I see laws of nature, right? I see evil. I don't see God anywhere. And, and so maybe I, I choose not to be have faith at all. But if I do, that faith contradicts that reality. So those are two very different approaches. Okay, Lauren, over to you. Hi, a few things. One, I just answered to being Dati Umi. Um, I grew up in B'nai Akiva, and there's a lot of religious Zionists who are very angry at this political party calling itself religious Zionism because they've usurped what a lot of us believe. So, I mean, I made Aliyah because of the mitzvah for it, my love for the country and the land. Um, so anyways, that's just, you know, an about. I'm, I'm just against everything that these kahanas are doing. Anyways, getting back to you, I find that emotions are the opposite of a reason, that emotions crowd reason. The people will do things that are even not in their own benefit because they've let hatred consume them or fear and it, it clouds reason. The other thing about Jung that bothers me is he seems to be the exact opposite of the scientific method. So I'm used to, if I'm going to know that a med is going to be a useful medication, I'm used to large gold standard studies. You look at a large group, you have placebo control, it's double blinded, there's a definite end, and uh, then you do the biostats on it. And that way you can predict whether or not a medication in many cases and for certain groups will be useful. That applies to many, many areas of science. So that's just what bothers me. Thanks. Mm. Okay, great. Learn a lot there. Let me give one example where we would see injustice produced um, based upon emotional detachment. Um, and, and, you're, uh, and, I, uh, and, and I feel free to weigh in and, and disagree. Um, I might, I might um, evaluate death penalty and I might come to the conclusion that the Pittsburgh shooter um, should get the death penalty because he, he was, did horrific things. And I believe the, just, the death penalty is just for people who do things that horrific. I might come to the conclusion that in that case and many other cases, I'm opposed to the death penalty for a whole host of reasons, either because it's it's done unjustly or because we don't want to perpetuate taking life, whatever the case is, whatever it is. So we can debate, we can debate through just reason. Now, if God forbid, it is somebody's child who was killed, they're probably more likely to support the death penalty in that case. If God forbid it's someone who their child is the murderer, they're probably more likely to not now support the death penalty which is to say that once we have an emotional attachment to the people involved in a case, um, that emotional attachment clouds our notion of justice through reason. One of the ways I understand the value of Jewish learning is to come to some levels of ethical conclusions before we are biased by who the actors are involved, right? We think through issues and get clarity um, so that when it emerges, we can see through some of the clutter. And so that may be the case um, that that applies to justice as well. Um, you know, I may 
if I'm rich, be supportive of lower taxes because I'm rich. And if I'm poor, I may be supportive of higher um, you know, taxes because I want more social benefits. But now pretend you're John Rawls. Now forget John Rawls. We'll get to him in a few weeks. Um, but now pretend you don't know where you're going to end up, right? And you have to evaluate tax policy based on what you just think is just. And you remove your own emotional attachment to your own lifestyle. It's very difficult. It changes the equation. And so, yes. And so I think on Lauren's issue, there's some cases we might feel emotion enhances reason. And there's other cases we don't. Um, where does fear get in the way? Where does joy get in the way? Uh, you know, if at all. So too, take a case like this. Is it right? Okay, there's a train tracks. And on, on, one, on one side of the train tracks is a relative I love. On the other side of the train tracks are three strangers. Who do you save? Do you save, and you know, you get to change which way the train is gonna go. Do you choose to save the relative you love or do you choose to save the three people, strangers? Well, according to one very moral camp we're gonna explore in the coming weeks, um, it's obvious you save more people, right? You save three people, not one. According to another, another, you know, philosophical camp, no. Like you should love your mother more than a stranger. You are more responsible to your brother than a stranger, right? There is a notion of different levels of responsibility and something's profoundly wrong about choosing to help strangers over, over family. Um, and there, of course, emotions are going to get involved. Okay, okay, okay. Ex-husbands are popping in here. <laughs> ex-husbands, ex-wives. Yeah, who are you going to save over there? Okay, very interesting stuff. Okay, Ethan Whitoff, over to you. <laughs> Thanks, Larry. Hi, Rabbi. I, yeah. I, uh, I, I wanted to pick up on, I think, where you were going there, and as well as commenting on what, what Lauren talked about, um, with sort of this idea that emotion can overwhelm logic. And I think Lauren sort of uh, presented that with connotation that that is uh, a bad thing. Sorry, my, my dog, Yal, is contributing to our discussion here. Um, and I can certainly think about times in my life where I have been angry to the point that that overwhelmed my sense to act rationally. Um, I also want to point out that if we think about how humans act logically, um, the study of economics would tell us that humans acting logically means that they will act in their self-interest and their best self-interest all the time. That is sort of the, the notion of the invisible hand. And so I want to uh, offer to the group that while ocean, uh, emotion can overwhelm logic in a negative way, as Lauren pointed out, uh, with feelings of anger overwhelming our ability to think clearly. I also think that sometimes emotion can be used in a way to inspire selflessness, to encourage people to actually act out of logic in a way that potentially they would innately move towards in, in something that is self-benefiting uh, for themselves, but that by inspiring emotion in them, we can inspire them to act selflessly and that it can be a really powerful tool in that way. Very cool. Very cool. Awesome points there, Ethan. Thank you. And, I, and, I'll, and I'll leave that for others to engage with. Uh, very interesting. And um, picking up on just one of your points, 
I think, can come to the realm of probabilities. L let's look at emotion for, uh, through the realm of desire for a moment. There's many different types of desire, of course. Let's take the type of desire for gain or the desire uh, to not lose. It turns out with probabilities, and there's a tons of study, uh, studies on this, but let me just take an easy case that feels like it'll resonate, that um, as it comes to risks, we may not be so concerned, but as it comes to possible gain, we think that desire can be actualized. So let me give an example. Someone says, okay, you're gonna do a surgery, don't worry, the chance of mortality from the surgery is three in 10,000. Three in 10,000, it's nothing. My gosh, of course I'll do the surgery. Like there's good outcomes here. Three to 10,000 is nothing. Now, someone else goes and buys a lottery ticket. Not because they think it's a game. Oh, it's, I'm going to enjoy the fun thrill of the $2 spent because it's a game. But I think I got a chance to win. It's one, yeah, I got, it's one out of 500 million. And I got a chance to win. They, they check their numbers and they actually go, ah. Oh. They actually thought there was a chance to win. So three out of 10,000, there's no chance it's going to be me in the surgery. I'm not going to be the one who dies. Three out of 10,000, right? One out of 500 million. Oh, I win the lottery. I thought, I thought that was my chance, right? So as it comes to probability, our desire is constantly reshaping our sense of, of what's likely, of what's likely to happen. And that's worth thinking about as we think about risk uh, management in our lives and how we think about losses and how we think about gains. Okay, who's next? Yes, hi, Steve Chauvin. I have two things. One has to do with head and heart, and one has to do with probability. As, as you know, and you've stated a couple of times, I'm a stock market trader, <laughs> and I've done pretty well over the years, but I know that I don't know. And every time I would give a speech, I'd say, we're dealing with probabilities, not certainties. We have to develop data and facts and observations which suggest the probabilities are high or not high. And then we make our move knowing that we don't know and that we could be wrong. And I am wrong often. And so you develop techniques to reduce the, pro the, the likelihood of error and the probability of big loss. That's, that's the way I approach it. We deal with probabilities, not certainties, and we use protective procedures. That's, that's all I'm gonna say about that. Uh, number two, I have what I thought was a head and heart problem before I heard everybody talk today, and it's this, and it's it's kind of a personal thing, but I'm sure everybody has gone through it. About two or three years ago, I developed a friendship with a young lady who had unbelievable odds against her, and we developed a pretty good friendship. And then last year, she had found out she had cancer. Um, and this year she had to have a double mastectomy. She's an unwed mother of four kids and a warrior, the likes of which I have never, ever seen. She seems oblivious to her own problems. She dotes on her kids and community, and she does everything for them. So I, Steve Chauvin, the lonely old man, think that on one day I am absolutely in love with this girl. And then the next day I say, Steve, come on, wake up, man. You're 80. She's 37. What the heck are you thinking? Get, get a hold of yourself. And I know the latter is, is true. But head and heart can be difficult to separate. And they are not necessarily bad if you can't separate them. 
because I think I have a great and logical and heart relationship with this girl. Mm. And that's it. And that's all. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Wow. Wow. Thank you. Um, yeah. You know, and so one one of the things that stimulated is coming up here as well is what do we do with the wisdom of knowing things when people around us don't know them? Um, what do we do with that? Let me give an example. Your second grade child or grandchild or nephew or niece, the second grader that you know is very nervous for their second day, first day of school. And through the realm of reason, you're like, I've seen this before. You're going to get through it. It's all good. You can kind of give some reason why it's all good. good you know, you know, it's all good. You know, you've, you've seen many children go through the first day of school and be fine. And is the, is the reasoning helpful? And I, I see this consistently. Um, or do we just have to be in the emotional experience with them? Be in the emotional experience with them, understand what they're experiencing, validating it. And um, what does it look like when we have reason, we know it's going to be okay and someone else doesn't. And, um, and yet they're in an emotional place. On how do we interact with our reason with their emotion? Give another case. Let's say you're a doctor. You're an uh, let's just say an oncologist based on Steve's recent example, but when you're any kind of doctor, and you see people every day come in with the same thing, you know how it's going to work out. You're going to do X, you're going to Y, you're going to do Z, and you feel kind of emotionally detached from that, that process because you see it all the time, right? And um, so how do we how do we kind of bring bring the reason of kind of normalizing what that journey is like and seeing it all the time and account for kind of the emotional state that someone else is in? you know, being the first time that they're in it and in it so deeply. And this happens all the time. This happens all the time. I mean, just today I'm I'm doing two wedding counseling sessions and, you know, there's certain things I'm like, all right, let's move on. Like, here's the next part of the wedding. Here's what it's going to look like. Here's what it's going to feel like, blah, 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 you know? And um, actually they're like, this is the first time they're going through uh, their wedding or thinking about any wedding in any detail, you know? And so so part of what we're talking about today is how do we ourselves make sense of the world through, through reason and through emotion. But the other part is how do we then engage with other people who are in very different places in reason and in emotions? And how do we kind of interact, not just on a one-on-one, but collectively? Imagine a family together. You're there at Thanksgiving and there's 20 people at the table and one person's crying sentimentally about Thanksgiving. Another person's just chowing down right? Someone else wants to read some intellectual piece, right? We're in very different places. And how do we exist in a family, in a community, you know, given all that, all that realities? Okay. All right. Um, Sarah writes on the side, compassion reigns. I always need someone to be with my heart. I don't need someone's rationalizations. Great. Great. Now I do want to give a nod to cognitive therapy. There are people who do need, you know, cognitive or behavioral tips, on how you know to correct thinking errors, for example, there are thinking errors, but that's one thing. And then there's the rest of life as well. And um, yes, we need that. And as Rabbi Rabbi Barbara Simons writes over there, I think the question is how to share wisdom. Storytelling includes wisdom and emotion. I love that. Beautiful. Yes. How do we tell stories that includes the emotional realm and the wisdom piece? Okay. Then Gary, patients don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Wow. Love that. Um, yeah, the way, the way they, um, the way they say that in the rabbi world, I've probably said this before is, um, if you showed up at somebody's hospital bed 
they they think you gave the best sermon in the world. And if you didn't show up at their hospital bed, they think it's a horrible sermon, right? It doesn't matter what the content <laughs> is. It's all about the relation. It's all about the relationship. If the person thinks you care about them, you're the best doctor in the world, right? Um, you know, and and if not, the opposite. So, um, yeah. So, wow, friends, there's just a lot of wisdom you've all brought to the table today. And um, Hume never would have thought we would have gone in these directions. <laughs> but, but um, you know, I think one one you know one critique of 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 religion he gave was that he he argued and actually to even quote him that he thought all religious belief was traces in the end um to dread of the unknown that kind of religion conveniently can kind of t tell us something to believe or know um because of our fear of the unknown and you know some people may may engage it for that but it doesn't have to be that uh, religion can also be a container and community can be a container of sitting together with the unknown um, without necessarily resolving that. Um, yes, Christopher Hitchens. Um, and so thank you all. Um, I look forward to seeing you. Um, actually, I won't see you next week. Um, I don't know if anyone else is going to the Parliament of World Religions Conference in Chicago. That's where I'm going to be. And so I'm sorry I'm going to miss you uh, for that. But when we pick up the following week, and that's the only uh, pause we have, all of our holidays this year don't fall out. Yom Kippur is a Monday, but the rest of them are weekends. So we won't miss any Tuesdays with that. And um, so when we pick up in two weeks, having got, gotten through Hume, we will pick up with Rousseau. Rousseau. So we're going to go over to, to France. Lots to talk about with Rousseau. Have a wonderful day.